Hi everyone. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm very sorry I can't be there. I'm currently over at Stratty with the boys on a boys weekend. Actually, I'm not currently over on Stratty, but I will be on Friday, I guess. So thank you very much once again for having me. And I'm going to talk today about going mainstream or trying to. Assessing compassionate action in clinical practice as part of routine outcome measurement. Thank you, Chase, for bringing us all together. Uh, it's really great to have a, an inaugural event together uh, to discuss all things compassion and compassion science. Uh, just a brief bio, I'm Stan Steindl and a clinical psychologist just at a psychology practice called Psychology Consultants. And we set up a psychology consultants in 1999. So 23 years or something like that. Uh, equal parts exciting and terrifying uh, to think that time's passing. And also an adjunct here at UQ School of Psychology. Uh, and lucky enough to work with Dr. James Kirby and to be a part of this Compassionate Mind Research Group. So what I thought I would do today is to firstly define compassion as a motivation. Uh, we might look at a critique of current compassion measures. I'll then also talk briefly about motivational interviewing as a framework for assessing compassion motivation and then talk a little bit about the development of the compassion, motivation and action scales and how to use the CMAS in clinical and research sectors, but especially clinical. And this is where it's all about going mainstream. So firstly, defining compassion motivation. Well, of course, we all know Professor Paul Gilbert's definition of compassion. Compassion is a sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent it. There's that engagement aspect and action. Now, one of the points that Paul makes very strongly is that compassion is a stimulus response algorithm, an evolved and innate stimulus response algorithm. The stimulus, of course, is distress or suffering in oneself or others. The response is working out what to do to be helpful. This, of course, is uh, Pavlov and his dogs. And I always like to, to say the joke, do you know the one about why does Pavlov have such lovely hair? Because he uses classical conditioning. Moving right along. There are other stimulus response algorithms. So for example, the threat protection motivation uh, is also an evolved and innate stimulus response algorithm. The stimulus is threat and or danger to oneself or others. And the response is doing something in an effort to protect either the fight, flight, freeze, appease options for uh, responding to threat. 
But coming back to the compassion motivation, uh, we often think of the stimulus as the motivation to engage with suffering. That's the first half of Paul's definition, compassionate engagement, but also the motivation to take helpful action, which is the second part of Paul's definition. Research seems to say that cultivating a compassionate motivation is helpful. So here is a Kirby et al. paper that we all know and love, um, along with Cassie Telligen and myself as a bit of a third wheel, I must admit. But it seems to be important and across a whole range of different measures. Compassion-based interventions help to increase compassion, self-compassion and mindfulness, help to reduce depression, anxiety and psychological stress and improve life satisfaction and happiness. And so it seems like trying to uh, increase compassion motivation and perhaps too compassionate action uh, may be very helpful for psychological well-being. But there are also certain motivational inhibitors. Uh, barriers can arise in terms of both the motivation to engage and the motivation to take action. Uh, for example, engagement with suffering may cause a degree of personal distress. This may activate the threat protection motivation and motivate us to move away from the suffering to reduce our own distress. So, I guess for me, the $64 million question then was, how can we assess compassion motivation? As well as change in compassion motivation and action from pre to post intervention. So to begin with, we had a little bit of a look at the current compassion measures. And again, these will all be ones that you're very familiar with, the Self-Compassion Scale by Kristen Neff. In 2003, so a well-established measure, the Fears of Compassion Scales by Gilbert et al. in 2010, and the Compassion Engagement and Action Scales by Gilbert and others in 2017. In terms of the self-compassion scale, it, sort of, it assesses overall trait levels of self-compassion. And the SCS scores correlate with measures of psychological functioning. It's a very popular outcome measure for compassion-based interventions. It's useful in CFT, which is really the clinical approach that I generally take. Although the SCS really is coming from a, a different theoretical perspective. And the thing is that it's come under a, a bit of scrutiny for its fact, factor structure and, and psychometric properties. I'm not going to go deeply into that today. And it, it's, it's still um, a, a controversial topic, really, in the literature, it seems. You guys might even discuss that afterwards, if you wish. <laughs> but it doesn't assess compassion for others. And it doesn't explicitly assess compassion, motivation, and action. The fears of compassion scale, the FCS, kind of assesses these inhibitors to compassion, the fears, blocks, and resistances, the reservations or barriers, the things that get in the way, I guess, of compassion. And it measures that across the three flows, compassion for others, from others, and for oneself. And actually, FCS scores correlate with measures of psychological functioning. 
James has done, of course, along with um, a couple of colleagues, a big meta-analysis on the FCS and, and found some really interesting results there. And it's also a very widely used measure, um, clinically useful, especially in the context of CFT, where quite often this is exactly what we're, we're targeting with CFT is the reduction in fears, blocks and resistances across the three flows. The, the tricky bit here is that fears of compassion don't necessarily mean the inverse of compassion. And so when measuring fears of compassion, it, it's a different construct, really. The, the FCS doesn't assess compassion, motivation or action. Still very important, but doesn't quite assess those specific things. The most recent measure to come out of Gilbert's lab, if you like, and, and a bunch of other people is the Compassion, Engagement and Action Scale. Uh, measures those two psychologies or two processes of compassion, engagement and action. And again, across the three flows. And it touches on motivation and action via two specific items. For example, I'm motivated to engage and work with my distress when it arises. Or I take actions to do the things that will be helpful to me. So motivation action is in there in, in those two specific items. Each of the three scales for others, from others and for self, each have those two items. And this measure correlates with measures of psychological functioning. And, and one of the really important bits here is that it enables measurement of CFT processes and evaluation of CFT outcomes. But really it doesn't provide a more in-depth assessment of compassionate motivation. So we proposed that a brief measure drawing on some sort of established theoretical framework of motivation and action designed for repeated measurement and assessing change over time uh, would be useful for research and clinical work. Motivational interviewing. One of the things that I'm also very interested in alongside compassion, of course, is motivational inter interviewing and, and helping people change through having, um, well, compassionate conversations with people, uh, especially aimed at evoking certain language, certain motivational language, which seems to be predictive of uh, what people go on to do. What people say tends to predict, not guarantee, but it tends to predict what people go on to do. And so uh, we felt that this might be a framework uh, for designing a measure for assessing compassion, motivation and action. Uh, MI is a therapeutic approach really that enhances motivation for change by exploring this motivational language, also known as change talk. Miller and Rolnick 2013, if you haven't looked at that yet, please do. Uh, it's a great book that just obviously introduces the MI approach, very helpful therapeutic approach alongside all sorts of things that you might do. But anyway, that's enough of a plug for motivational interviewing. But anyway, the different types of change talk are desire, ability, reason, need, and then commitment. In other words, what I would like to change, how I might go about it, why, change might be a good idea, what might make that important, and what I'm committed to doing next. 
And so we sort of thought, what might be the motivational language, darn see, of compassion? Another little plug of a paper that, that we wrote, James, Cassie and I, uh, Motivational Interviewing in Compassion-Based Interventions, Theory and Practical Applications. So this was where we first sort of mooted the idea of motivational interviewing and, and its application there in, in compassion-based interventions. But out of all of that, we developed the compassion, motivation and action scales. I'm not sure what we're calling it. Like, is it, is it CMAS? Is it CMAS? James? What do you think? Anyway, once again, Cassie, James and I and a couple of others tried to develop this questionnaire, which was a measure of compassion, motivation and action. So we managed to get 621 adults from Australia, uh, USA, New Zealand and others, aged 18 to 87, average age of 43 years, 81% female, 19% male. And actually they completed 84 items. We created a list of 84 items, each, each of them tapping into one or other of those aspects of motivational language. We generated a whole list. We got input from some experts in motivational interviewing and some experts in compassion and ended up with these 84 different items, desire, ability, reason and need and commitment or action uh, for compassion and self-compassion. And then we divided the sample in two and used exploratory and confirmatory factor analyses this is why it was great to have a team to uh, help or do a lot of that. And it resulted in a 12-item CMAS compassion scale and an 18-item CMAS self-compassion scale with three subscales, intention, distress tolerance, and action. We also administered the SCS, the FCS, the DAS-21, uh, and the forms of self-criticism and self-reassuring scale. And I won't go into the numbers and so on in depth, uh, just given it's, we're having a, a, a happy, sort of friendly day today. So I won't, I won't bore you with all of that too much. But I just thought I'd, I'd mention some of the different, different items. Uh, in the compassion scale, I want to be kinder and more caring towards people I don't know. That would be example of desire. Uh, it's part of the in compassionate, compassion intention scale. Uh, I'm able to cope with my feelings in response to another person's suffering. That would be an example of distress tolerance. And I've been actively more kind this week to others in my life who are struggling. Would be an example of compassionate action. And then, of course, the self-compassion scale. I wish to be kind and caring towards myself when faced with difficulties. Uh, would be intention. I'm able to be kind to myself, even when it feels uncomfortable to do so. And I've been treating myself in a more gentle and caring way over the past week. So just to give you some of the highlights of, amongst the subscales, the stress tolerance of both scales, both the CMAS compassion and self-compassion scales, really performed best, which was interesting. It had significant associations with the SCS, the FCS and the DAS, <clears throat> and perhaps 
it really reflects the importance of distress tolerance in compassion. Mind you, it's interesting to note that the CMAS distress tolerance items kind of assess self-efficacy or, or ability change talk. And so partly that was to do with coping with the suffering, but partly it was to do with, with ability or confidence enacting compassion or self-compassion, enacting those kinds of behaviors. Secondly, intention. So the intention scale or subscale of the CMA, CMAS compassion scale did not perform as expected so much. Low associations with the fears of compassion scale for others and self-reassurance. So yeah, I mean, it, perhaps it's relying on three items. So that could be a, a reason. Uh, intention for the CMAS self-compassion scale performed better, predicting depressive symptoms and, and self-hatred. Don't know, maybe intention is important, but without distress tolerance, intention alone may not strongly predict compassionate responding. And actually, to be honest, you hear this, I think, clinically. Not sure whether you guys might have noticed this too, but uh, quite often people might talk about how they, they would really like to be more compassionate towards themselves, um, but they're just not sure that they know how. And so perhaps, yes, even clinically or anecdotally, perhaps that's part of the reason that the intention subscale on its own didn't perform quite as, as expected. The unique contribution of the CMAS, at least this is what we think, is that action for both compassion and self-compassion, ha having that uh, subscale, having that measure, uh, seems to be kind of new and, and kind of useful, I think. The CMAS compassion action subscale didn't perform particularly well, uh, but the CMAS self-compassion action subscale did, being significantly correlated with depression and self-hatred and, and in inadequacy. So this feels important, I guess. We, we sort of feel like uh, there's some real clinical utility there to be able to assess uh, over time and perhaps repeatedly uh, the self-compassion action. Research has generally found stronger associations between self-compassion and mental health compared to compassion for others and mental health. So perhaps that's part of it too. But yes, to be able to assess self-compassionate action and change over time seems to be potentially really useful. By the way, this, this particular uh, process took us a, a good five years. Uh, four rejections, I can't even remember the, the names of the journals. I think we started sort of up here and then we gradually <laughs> whittled our way down. So four rejections, four revisions, five submissions, and eventually on the fifth submission, we got the paper accepted. Never give up. All right. So, just some clinical and research implications now.
Well, the first thing really to come out of this study is the importance of distress tolerance. Um, distress tolerance, one's ability to cope with feelings of, a, of distress when approaching suffering is particularly important. And perhaps too, this idea of knowing what to do or knowing how to be compassionate towards others and ourselves. During CFT, in particular, um, attending to the client's perceived sense of distress, tolerance through conversation, um, and using this measure as part of that guided discovery, being able to administer the measure and kind of talk about it, have a bit of an inquiry, uh, in, especially in terms of this, this distress tolerance. I guess what we would do there is we would explore and elaborate on the client's ability change talk to build coping self-efficacy and confidence uh, and identify strategies with them for tolerating distress. And assessment of action. The CMAS can be used as a repeated measure of a client's compassionate and self-compassionate actions across an intervention. I, I don't know if you're, those of you who are working clinically perhaps, but I've definitely, for a long time now really, but tried to do routine outcome measurement where uh, traditionally it was, it was through the feedback informed treatment approach using the ORS and the SRS. More recently, I use the DAS-10, written, oh, developed, I guess, by our, our friends and colleagues, Kim Halford and Aaron Frost. Uh, and this seems to me to be a really interesting uh, companion. Uh, obviously, the DAS-10 measures symptoms and change in symptoms across time. And this is a bit of a process measure that can go alongside that. Notice being able to measure outcomes in terms of uh, certain process variables, self-compassionate action uh, in particular. So this might also help offer greater insights into differentiating which components or sessions or modules of the intervention are facilitating behavior change. It wouldn't surprise me, for example, if intention starts to grow and then perhaps distress tolerance might start to build for a client and then uh, change in self-compassionate action might come from there. It's just an idea, but you might be able to understand across your treatment which bits of the intervention are uh, helping with, with these different um, factors on this particular scale. So maybe it's applicable too in, in therapy and research um, especially this sort of dismantling or process of change type research. Oh, and the bit about going mainstream. So we've managed to get the CMAS, both the compassion and the self-compassion subscales, uh, included on NovoPsych. So NovoPsych is a really great tool. It's available uh, for clinicians and uh, hosts a large number of different psychometric questionnaires. It now also has the CMAS. Uh, so this is kind of exciting. And, and I, this is just some dummy data because it's all kind of new. And, and so I don't know whether things will li literally 
track along as beautifully as this uh, with, with my clients. But it gives you a really nice little kind of, well, it gives you a little report actually of um, the results and uh, what they mean. And it also produces these sorts of graphs. So the, the top graph there is really just a, a total score for the, S, for the CMAS self-compassion scale. Uh, so it offers a total score, but it also breaks it down into the three factors as well. Uh, purple is intention, blue is distress tolerance, and green, I think, is um, action. And they have created subscale, uh, sorry, subscale percentiles for all of that. So yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of fun to um, begin with a, a little idea to not give up and persist. And by the way, I did want to actually say thank you, James, for your encouragement on that one. I, you may remember that I very nearly gave up on the whole thing after either the third or fourth rejection, I can't quite remember. But to persist and then to look at implementing your work into, you know, um, the mainstream, into, you know, kind of different practices and, and with therapists or in other areas that you might be working. Um, it's kind of exciting to see uh, our work become part of the mainstream. I'll actually be delivering a seminar for NovoPsych in the coming months. And uh, hopefully, <laughs> if, there's, if some people come or their users come to, to listen, uh, I'll be telling them all about being able to measure change in compassion and self-compassion uh, over time, perhaps alongside uh, the, the DAS-10 as, as, a, as a symptom measure as well. Of course, there's a few limitations with the CMAS. Um, well, it'd be good to, to do a validation study on a clinical sample. And actually, NovoPsych, uh, Ben Buchanan is the person down there, and he's uh, organised it so that we might be able uh, to look at some of the, the data that might come in through NovoPsych. We want to see whether the CMAS can... Uh, differentiate clinical and non-clinical populations, whether it is in fact sensitive to change, whether it has adequate test-retest reliability, um, doing some follow-up study on all of that with, with clinical samples. And perhaps also should be validated across different cultures. It has been, actually. I probably could have included this, but um, we did do some validation of the CMAS in a Portuguese sample. Uh, we were collaborating with, with our colleague, Marcela Matos from the University of Coimbra to, to do that. So there actually is a paper out that has looked a little bit at that at least. That's good. Um, more research into the convergent and discriminant validity of the CMAS is also needed. Um, perhaps the relationship between the CMAS and various other measures of mental health or compassion or altruism, psychological well-being. And examining whether the CMAS predicts behavioural measures would be very interesting. What do people actually do? And does the CMAS go on to predict that? So, our aim was to develop a, a brief, user-friendly, public domain measure 
of compassion, motivation and action, which was psychometrically strong. And based on the EFA and CFA results, along with concurrent discriminants and predictive validity indicators, we can conclude the CMAS includes the compassion scale and the self-compassion scale. Um, it's a robust measure of compassionate and self-compassionate motivation and action. And both scales can be used together or separately in research and clinical work. Uh, in fact, I've tended to, to primarily use the self-compassion scale in my clinical work. So that's the end of my little talk. And I once again appreciate you having me. I'm sorry I can't be there again, although I suspect I'm uh, having a good time by the time you get to see this. Um, by all means, be in touch um, if anyone's interested. Uh, but otherwise, have a, a great rest of your one-day compassion symposium. And I'll see you at the next meeting. Thanks, everyone.